Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and today's guest is Professor Ben Hine. Ben is a professor of applied psychology, the author of Parental Alienation, A Contemporary Guide, and he is the co-founder of the Men and Boys Coalition. And in this conversation, we speak about Ben's personal story with parental alienation. We talk about masculinity. We talk about men's mental health and what we can do for our young boys and men. In other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So go ahead and click the link that's in the show notes, scroll through all of their products, and see which ones might work best for you and your wellness needs. Then once you get to checkout, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 221 of Something for Everybody with Dr. Ben Hine. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashbitz. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Very important question to uh, to jump off the show, and that is, how are you doing? Like, actually, really, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Um, feeling, I was feeling really maxed out towards the end of last year um, because I had uh, spent the year, like, getting the book out, promoting the book and promoting the project that I'd done in uh, 2022. So I, and because it's an area that's very close to me as well. So it's not just my work. It also kind of leads me to, you know, think about it and, you know, have to do work personally as well when I'm talking about it. So yeah, I was just feeling very at the end of whatever I could deliver at that year. And then I had a lovely winter break and uh, spent really good time with family and stuff. So yeah, feeling good, feeling refreshed. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I was I was listening to you talk about um, your story, and what sort of stood out to me the most was that you your professional work sort of um, made you realize what happened in your personal life about the parental alienation. You know, usually it's a bit different. Like people research what mm. they go through. Um, mm. And so I thought that was very interesting. Um, you don't have to go into it super in depth about what happened, but um, how did your your work allow you to make the realization about your personal journey? Yeah, it's really interesting because I was um, I was I was teaching some uh, undergraduates on on Friday about this because, especially in psychology, a lot of people come to the discipline with like a specific question. They sign up to psychology because they want to understand something specific and. They then, you know, do that and then maybe they might go on to masters and do their PhD in that thing. And then that becomes what they build their career on. And actually, I mean, my PhD was on something completely different, um, still in psychology, but nothing around this at all. And it's only over the last like three years that because of the work I was doing more broadly in the domestic abuse space, which again, I just kind of fell into, I was just kind of picking up stuff I was interested in and I was working with people that I'd met and, you know, uh, enjoying it, but not really for that kind of purpose and that drive. And it's interesting you said that before, because um, there's a phrase that we use, which is uh, research is me search, um, whereas a, where a lot of people are, are drawn towards exploring something that is personal to them. But I hadn't, I hadn't really had that I always knew I was interested in psychology I always knew I was interested in kind of gender stuff I guess because you know my experiences growing up and I then did a study um with a colleague called Liz Bates who does a lot of stuff on male victims of IPV in the UK we did a study together on men's experiences particularly when children uh, were kind of part of that picture and I tried to analyze the data and realized that I was meeting this kind of invisible wall which I'd never had with anything before um I'm usually pretty uh thick skinned when it comes to research I've done a lot of stuff on sexual violence I've done a lot of stuff that would you know turn people off at dinner parties and things like that but I hadn't ever been bothered by and then just found myself really like not being able to get through the data without crying and without getting really upset and and wanting to like put it down and delaying the analysis which uh, 
I had to constantly apologize for to my collaborator. And then I had a chat with her and she said, you know, why do you think it is? And I said, I think I'm seeing myself in the data. That's why I think I'm, I think I'm remembering stuff that these men are talking about that I think I experienced, but as the child in that situation. And so it kind of just grew from there. That was in 2020. Um, when I was uh, working from home, because it was a pandemic, um, and I was up in my, uh, in my in my old house, in my loft office, just like hold away with this massive stack of papers of testimonies from dads in a really bad place. And then it just grew from there. And I um, decided to then, with Liz's guidance, to explore it autoethnographically. So from my own perspective, making sense of the, the data and it actually led, and this is the thing, the work led to the personal rather than the other way around, like you said. So the work led me to then sit down and have a conversation with my dad to be, you know, to say, look, give me, give me the whole picture that I've never had before. Give me the whole, like, you know, you can talk just straight through what's your interpretation of the events. And I heard some stuff in that conversation that I'd never heard before. I didn't believe was the case and actually is the case, you know, it's blowing apart years and years of you know myths and uh stuff i'd been told stuff i'd been fed you know by various people and then yeah just grew into the father's project my interest in this area i wrote the book i have just uh i've just had a massive kind of review paper accepted as well which kind of lays everything out of where we are with pa at the moment so yeah it's been a really it's been a really interesting journey and i have you know, I'm very grateful to the work actually for kind of informing the personal development. Because I'm, if I hadn't have stumbled across it, if we hadn't have done that original study, I don't know whether I ever would have um, had a label for it or had an understanding of it enough to kind of want to do anything about it or to heal or to look at the relationship with my dad. So, yeah, it's a a weird a weird relationship. How was your relationship with your father before and after this revelation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I was never, and, and people who've heard me speak before, and, and if people have my, my book, the, the story is a bit more out, outlaid in, in there. But I mean, uh, my dad and my mom and my mom's parents they they kind of fought for custody over me and then i actually ended up my dad actually um was well he wasn't awarded custody they dropped the case but i went to live with my dad so i've always had a relationship with him because i actually mm -hmm. lived with him uh from when i was eight to when i was 18 and i moved out and went to university um but it's always been uh strained almost by this kind of wedge and this specter that was there from when the custody battle was going on and the alienation that happened. <clears throat> and actually, when I was 18, it kind of fractured a bit further, because everything that happened meant that when my mum passed away, you know, he, he, you know, he didn't come to the hospital. We've talked about this like hundreds of times. And I understand why now, but at the time, you know, that was that was a big rupture in our relationship. So I would say it was like, good, okay. Um, but not great. Um, and since being able to do this work and work through and have really tough discussions where you know and i i have said to him a lot you know i'm so grateful to him to come to those open because they've been really difficult for for both of us um mm. and he's been really really open he's also been very balanced and very humble of saying when things are unfair but also when things are fair about him as well he's been very good at saying that you know i wasn't perfect here i wasn't perfect there did this did that but here's where I draw the line and this wasn't, this isn't the right view of me that you should have. Um, and I would say now, I mean, now it's the best it's ever been. Like I feel really kind of close um, to him and it's allowed some of the other relationships to then settle because I have kids of my own now. So he's, he's popsy. He's, he's obviously a grandparent and, um, you know, it allows me to manage some of the feelings that I have about their relationship better, you know, the jealousy and things like that. Sometimes when, you know, my son and my dad are pouring over football cards together where I never developed that interest because I was specifically stopped from developing that interest. 
and I I look at that less now of in a jealous way. I look more of it as a happy a happy thing. But um, yeah, I'd say it's the best the best it's been now for sure. Yeah the the story I heard you share about your father in sports was one that that really mm. struck a chord with me because sports for me have been you know basically my whole life they still are mm. and I can't even imagine if that was something that I couldn't have bond over with my even my mom and my dad mm. I grew up in the Bay Area close to San Francisco and there was a famous baseball player named Barry Bonds mm. who used to play left field and my dad and I would go to the games we would sit right behind him and we would just Maybe there was, I don't know, I don't remember if there was like a ton of conversation, but I just remember that being a joyous moment. Like, this is me and my dad. I love baseball. Oh shit, that's fucking Barry Bonds. That's cool as heck. And hearing that that got ripped away from you, I I don't know, that just like, I don't know, it just hurt hurt me hearing that about you. And I'm I'm glad that now your kids can experience Mm. that in a way that you didn't and you can watch that from afar and and maybe mm. now you and your dad sit down and watch a football game at the house and whatever, or rugby match or, or you know, yeah. whatever the case may be is so. And it, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because it's, it, the, the important thing, and I, I get what you're saying completely about, about sport itself. I mean, it's a very, um, as an activity, it invites that kind of bonding, you know, more so than a lot of other activities. But for a lot of people, it's basically it's just whatever that parent loves will be targeted to try and take the kid away. And I mean, one of, mm. I always say to people, I think one of the great joys of being a parent is trying to force your interests onto your children. <laughs> That's one of the things that's most enjoyable <laughs> is saying you will you will like this because I like this and I need someone to like it with me. Um, because uh, I've certainly realized that if as an adult with no time, if I want to do something that I enjoy, if I can get one of the kids to do it, then it kind of gets a free pass because the kids want to do it. So we get to do it. Um, but in terms of the sports thing, I mean, yeah, it, 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 I think it's just it just demonstrates how really kind of malicious and devastating certain tactics can be in terms of attacking that relationship, because, you know, like many, uh, not to be stereotypical, but like many men, like many fathers, you know, sport, and particularly in my family, because my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a, a PE uh, college professor. So he, you know, there was always a huge, huge emphasis on physical education and sporting in our family. So for our family in particular and the lineage, it's really important. And my dad, I mean, he's obsessed across all types of sport but particularly football so to for him to have that or to not have that as an opportunity to pass on that love and to experience those moments where you know you look down and the the little person that you help create is enjoying that moment just as much as you are and you're bonding together is is really it is really devastating and it is something that we still both carry because yeah, you're right. We do um, we do more than we've ever done in terms of talk about sport, and you know, uh, I, I I don't know how many of your listeners will be familiar with with kind of darts and dart competition. But there was like a big sixteen year old uh, you know superstar who came along this championship, you know, and we'll have a passing comment about it. But you know, I mean, I think I've I've only ever been to about three football games with him, whereas if we'd have had a quote unquote normal time you know I'd, I'd probably be going every week or something you know um and uh yeah it's it and it's difficult because now my son is obsessed with football he's in a very kind of classic six and a half year old boy phase and um there's a legacy there in terms of me feeling inadequate now parenting down because I'm like oh am I a good enough do I know enough about this yeah. do I know enough about the players and Am I excited enough? And so I'm there scrambling and being like, oh, who's that? Who's this? So I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's interesting how some of the things that happen and that can happen when alienation is present seem very innocuous at the time, but actually they have really long lasting effects. But yeah, we're getting, we're, we're definitely getting there. And yeah, we'll see. I'd like to, uh, just drill down a little bit on actually what um, 
the parental alienation actually is. Cause for me, it's, it's a brand new thing that I didn't, that I stumbled mm. upon checking out your work and, and things like that. It makes sense to me what it is after figuring it out and, and, and looking at your work. Um, but could you explain exactly what it is and if it's like a recent phenomenon or how long it's been going on or how long it's actually been tracked? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about parental alienation, we're usually talking about two things. We're talking about parental alienation as an outcome, which is uh, where a child rejects a parent for no good reason um, based on the actions of the other parent. And also we then talk about it in terms of a process, which is when we're talking about the behaviors or the parental alienating behaviors or paths. And that's actually what occurs in order to make that happen. So when people say, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing parental alienation, um, it's important to kind of ask them, you know, does that mean that you're experiencing these kind of behaviors towards you and your child and, and the bond, or has it actually had then the effect that it's intended to have? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's basically an attack on that relationship, um, usually by the other parent, but there are lots of other actors that can become involved. Um, in my case, grandparents were very uh, important in that process. Um, it can be systems like courts or social workers, etc., can contribute or teachers can contribute. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's an attack by the other parent or associated actors that seeks to undermine, destabilize that relationship. And it often happens uh, in separation or divorce, but it can happen in intact relationships as well. Um, and the final thing about, you know, what it is, is uh, Burnett came out with this five-factor model last year, which just really clearly states that there has to be, yes, some kind of contact refusal, but it has to be when the parent had a previously good relationship with the child. And that's really important mm. because one of the issues that we have in the area is that you potentially have parents who are um, emotionally uh, unavailable or abusive or absent who turn up after years and say, or, or they turn around and say, well, actually, I'm being alienated. That's not the case. There may be some estrangement there, but it might be justified because the child might be rejecting you for a valid reason. So it's really important that we focus on making sure that when someone's saying, okay, I, I'm being alienated, that they previously had a good relationship, that they're not an abusive parent, um, and that there is some level of contact refusal or resistance, and that lots of different alienating behaviors are present, and that the child is showing the kind of signs of what you know, that, uh, the impact on them on those behaviors. So it's, um, and it's a big issue. It's a really big issue. And we're starting to get some numbers behind that. Um, in the US and Canada and the UK, we're seeing studies come out. My own, I just did one in the UK, which showed that kind of between 40 and up to 60% of parents, depending on how you ask them, report experiencing some form of alienating behavior in separation, which is a huge amount. Wow. Um, and in terms of the recency, I mean, it's a very difficult question because it's the phenomenon has been written about for probably well over 150, 140 years, um, especially in case law, whereas it was popularized in the 80s by a man called Richard Gardner, who came up with parental alienation syndrome. There's subsequently been lots of kind of issues and controversies raised about that. So PA in its current form and its current kind of evidence base is, is really over the last kind of 15 years, I would say. Um, and again, like with many things that increase in awareness doesn't mean it hasn't been happening. Um, but we're just kind of starting to get a real handle on what it looks like, how we can measure it and what we can do to intervene. But it's, um, it's definitely worthy of our attention, much more of it, in fact. I would imagine it's really hard to tell that alienation is happening in the midst of it, I guess, especially for, for maybe like a young kid, right? Like, cause especially if you're going through a divorce or separation, which you said is sort of one of the foundational pieces, especially if they had a good relationship, um, previous that maybe the kid just assumes that's just how divorce and separation go. Um, so are there ways to, to figure that out or, or help someone out in those moments or to think about things maybe differently to, to see that it, it might be alienation or something like that? I, th I think it's, I mean, for ch if you're talking about parents, um, you know, a lot, pa parents will immediately recognize, um, 
Well, I mean, even that, it depends on the, it depends on how good the alienator is, basically. Mm. Um, like I said, a lot of the tactics can be very subtle, in which case it can probably go more undetected. Um, you know, some of the more extreme, ta- I mean, abduction, pretty hard to not notice uh, if your child's been abducted. So, you know, it's, um, as has happened in my case. So it's, um, for, for the parents, it depends on the efficacy of the alienator. For children, it doesn't really depend on that, like you said, because children are programmed to trust the caregivers who are in their environment. Um, and this is why children's opinions and their memories are so easily corruptible with information um, that is fed to them. This is why it's so difficult to utilize child testimony in court, for example, because we know that child testimony is so malleable and so unreliable. That's a, that's a well-established um, uh, that's well established in kind of eyewitness psychology um, research is that children's testimonies are, are very unreliable because they're easily manipulated, um, especially when the, the actors involved in that and the actors involved in the dialogue are people who ultimately we should be trusting more than anyone else, i.e. our parents. Um, so it's really, really difficult. I think the most important thing is that you can, uh, there, are, there are eight signs Uh, Don't ask me to list them off the top of my head, but there are eight signs that Burnett has put together in his five factor model, um, which is built off of people like Amy Baker's work, which are the manifestations of parental alienation in children. And it's more up to responsible adults to recognize those behaviors and to signpost and to flag those. So, for example, systems like schools, like social workers. So in this country, we have uh, CAFCAS, which is this, the uh, the body that kind of liaises on behalf of children and parents in the court system. Um, it's up to those kind of bodies to help children identify what's going on rather than relying on the children. And, and this is, again, why we have an issue with how, yeah, how, how we incorporate so-called voice of the child within the court, because that voice can be manipulated um, in various different ways. Um, but yeah, it can be very difficult to establish. And one of the really depressing things is that sometimes people kind of say, well, you know, if anything, anything could be alienation then. So therefore, we shouldn't pay any attention to it, which I think is a very kind of irresponsible uh, response. Because um, if I was being facetious, I would say the same thing about, you know, domestic violence, you can kind of define domestic violence as broadly or as narrowly as you, as you want to in any given situation. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean that we ignore domestic violence. Same with parental alienation. Yes, it's hard to determine whether something is an offhand comment or a campaign of denigration towards a parent, which is constant bad mouthing. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Um, so uh, that's what a lot of people in the area are working on is how to identify it, how to measure it accurately so that we can get people assessed better in, in family court, for example. Is there uh the mom or dad or whoever is the the two parents, is there a person who does the alienation more than than another or gets alienated more than another? No, I similarly with domestic violence, other forms of domestic violence. um, It's not a, it's not a gendered thing in the sense that anybody, we're all human. We're all capable of positive and negative behaviors. Um, To be honest, similarly to domestic violence, although it's not thought of enough in this way, um decisions and actions around those decisions are often associated more with trauma than anything else um and and emotional dysregulation attachment trauma etc we 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 have a a growing body of evidence that looks at ipv you know traditional ipv perpetration being linked much more to kind of aces you know adverse childhood experiences etc and the same is probably true around parental alienation um, behaviors are probably triggered by attached intergenerational transmission of trauma etc rather than gender per se um, that being said it depends because parental alienation is easier to enact in certain situations versus others so for example if you have a, a situation where you have a couple and they separate um, and one of those individuals moves out of the family home and gets to see the child one day every fortnight, it's much easier for the 
parent who the child lives with the majority of the time to alienate than it is for the other person to do it because they're getting more time, more access, etc. So if you then plumb into that, for example, the stats in the UK that 90%, around 90% of non-resident parents are fathers, then there is a gendered element there because fathers are more at risk because they're the non-resident parent. But I would never say that PA is a exclusively mother or father perpetrated um, behavior because we know that not to be the case. So um, it's it's about as ever having a nuanced view of these things rather than saying, yep, yeah, it's a male issue or a female issue. Well, no, it's a behavior. We're all capable of it, um, depending on you know the type of person that we are, the type of personality that we have, the trauma that we carry, um, and society that we grow up in as well is a really big factor because there's probably people who are personality or trauma inclined to act in a certain way in Norway or Finland or Sweden or Denmark for example but they don't because actually societally there are bigger taboos around doing those types of things post-separation than we have for example in the UK where Actually, most people probably expect divorce to be quite acrimonious, um, which, again, is a very sad thing, but it's true. So um, there's lots of very complicated reasons why someone might perpetrate um, alienating behaviours, which I would put gender quite low down on that list. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Let's uh, I'd like to sort of uh, take a, a hard left here into specifically talking about men and their mental health because you have a coalition of of men and boys Mm. and so my question to you now is what do you think that we are getting wrong when it comes to dealing with men's mental health um the lack of empathy i think fundamentally everything Mm. everything comes back to when you when you're talking about men and boys and and like you said i was a co-founder of the men and boys coalition here in the uk I'm currently chair of the male psychology section of the British Psychological Society. You know, I do a lot of advocacy around um, men and boys issues. I also do that in my personal life as well, you know, uh, as a father of a son. And I I go in to my son's local, I'm a school governor, and I go into my son's local school as a volunteer as well. And I read with boys who are behind on their reading. I think every single domain, every single area that I look at and that I have colleagues looking at, um, whether that be, and we kind of have these kind of big five, um, and I've set myself up now to not be able to name them all, but, you know, we have like boys in education, we have vulnerable boys and men, <clears throat> for example, homeless or prison population, victimized men, men and mental health, um, and uh, probably one other, but now I said I set myself up to fail, but across all of those domains, I think everything is colored by a lack of empathy around men's issues it's really hard to get people engaged and even believing that men not only have issues but that those issues are then worthy of our attention because there just seems to be multiple barriers of saying well people will either go well men don't have problems and then you show them the stats mm-hmm. pick any stat you know 75 percent of completed suicides are by men Suicide is the number one killer of men under 55 in the UK. Uh, you know, 90% of the uh, homeless, uh, no, 80% of the homeless population is men, 90% of the prison population. Take any of those stats, they go, okay, well, okay, men might have problems, but they're men. So, you know, screw them type thing. Um, and that feeds from the kind of attitudes that we have around men and masculinity more broadly is that we should, I don't know, I, I, be tough enough to deal with it or that we should deal with it alone or that it's not our problem or even when you then delve down into more sinister attitudes about potentially men being more disposable or that men have brought it upon themselves or that it doesn't matter because they're men even to the point where you delve down even more sinisterly that it actually is a good thing that most men are in prison uh, that most prison population is men or it's a it's a you know it's a good thing that um you know, I mean, I've seen the the hashtag kill all men, you know, trend on Twitter a few times. I've never seen the correspond. I've never seen a corresponding one for women um, and not, nor would I want to. Um, so I think it, for me, it all ta- the challenge always tackles back to empathy towards men and a chronic lack of it societally. 
and you see it peppered everywhere. And one of the one of my favourite quotes is um, a quote by Hillary Clinton where she said, um, "The the big I, I'm going to paraphrase. It's not quite exactly what she said, but she said the the greatest victims of war are the women and children left behind." Um, which I think is such a powerful quote in the sense that it just completely erases the. I mean, surely the ultimate price you're paying is to die. Mm. And if that's the majority of men who are at the war, at armed services, and we know the majority of the armed services are men, it just shows how those quotes just completely spin the narrative to frame and place, you know, the suffering of, of women and girls, which we've become very, and rightly so, very familiar with and we're doing lots about. But you take any given issue, you get met with this kind of paradox of um, erasure for men in the picture. So, for example, if you have an issue where the overwhelming majority of the victims, so say, for example, rape and serious sexual assault, the overwhelming majority, so 90% of those are women and girls. So men are erased because we say, okay, that's a female issue. Okay, fine. So then if you take a corresponding statistic and say, okay, well, 90% of the prison population is men. Should we not try and understand a bit more about why men are violent? The only ever pieces I see about gender and prisons is how do we make prisons better for women when they're 10% of the population. So men fall through the gap at both turns. They can't be seen as minorities. They can't be seen as majorities. It's just any issue isn't worth examining in relation to men. So I think that's that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. The conversation is challenging because men are are seen as disposable and people only think about men and all of the horrible things that potentially men that men did. And then you ask someone to think about a great man in their life and mm. they do and it helps them sort of change a little bit. Then they can see some common humanity in the other men. And how Mm. can we draw that out in our young boys, right? Because Mm. I I think we we we've sort of over rotated on one side of of our masculinity of like telling boys to just like stand Mm. back, be quiet, let other people Mm. step on you. That's not what our society needs. Our society Mm. needs dynamic young boys who who are sometimes tough and can pull themselves up by their bootstraps because that's part of life. Like if I get knocked down, I got to get back up. But when I do get back up, how can I ask for help? That's like teaching that Mm. sort of idea. I can pull Mm. myself back up, but I also have my buddy or my mom or my sister or my best friend Mm. to say, hey, I'm I'm struggling now. I got myself back up, but I need a little bit of extra help. And so teaching this full spectrum of uh, masculinity, um, I was Mm. talking to another guy and he said, masculinity is like a hammer. and, And I like that. Because one, the hammer can be used to smash someone in the fucking face, excuse Mm. my language, right? Or it can be used to build a home, Mm. right? So so inherently, if we teach young boys that they're just bad and toxic from the beginning because they're men, then they're obviously going to do bad things or they're going to step away from society and remove themselves, which is also what we don't need or want. But if Mm. you teach them that they can learn to utilize this beautiful thing they have inside of them, which is their innate energy, to build, to nurture, to reciprocate, to cooperate, to be tough, to use their body as a, mm. a, a strength, not as to something to dominate. Like that's mm. what we can be teaching people. And I think you're 100% right with just this lack of empathy that arises when we look at men like, oh, they can figure it out. Like they don't mm. need anyone's help. They're, they'll be fine. Like clearly just, that's not yeah. true. Boys are struggling in school. You know, boys yeah. aren't going to university. Um, There's a lot of boys who aren't having sex, which like may seem like that's not a big deal, but it is because they're not going out into the world and and speaking Mm. to other people, whether Mm. they want to have whoever they want to have sex with, they're not even trying. Mm. And and that's an issue, you know, and so Mm. those are the things that sort of pop up for me um, when I think about mental health and masculinity and things of that nature. What you were saying is in terms of we're just not having balanced conversations about the issues because Mm. nobody well, certainly not me and not anybody reasonable that I speak to is talking about any of the kind of progress and the discussions and the reforming around um, women, women's rights, you know, ex- and, and women's gender role as, an, as a negative thing and saying that, you know, it's ruined things for men. 
it hasn't we're just where's the corresponding side of the coin where's our where's mm-hmm. the other conversation where we say basically if we're going to um develop and blend and equalize this kind of female gender role and give the choice and say okay well you you know if you want to go into more masculine things and do this do you know if we're going to break down that side we've just left men where they were there's been no real proper dialogue about it on a big societal level in a way that kind of really brings in some of the kind of pivotal or lone voice moments where we have some who are doing it and I think my my main person is kind of Harry Styles in that sense that he's the one who's trying to um you know break a lot of those kind of stereotypical images down um and and you know being on the cover of here and cover of there and doing good things but they, these aren't the conversations the boys are having in school you know whereas girls aren't right. Girls are having those empowerment conversations in school about doing, they can do whatever they want to do. We're not having those conversations with boys. And I really like your hammer analogy because, you know, if you flip a hammer round, you can really kind of carefully and tactfully take out a nail and correct a mistake. You know, it's, it's about really visualizing and expanding what we view masculinity to be, hopefully to a point where we have these archetypes but they're not binding in any particular way and that we can flexibly utilize any part of our kind of selves that we want to and that feels right to us at any given moment um but we're just we're just so far behind in where we need to be in terms of a lot of those conversations and it is difficult because i i mean i'm a gender psychologist that's my kind of origin so i know just how complicated it is to answer the question are men and women inherently different or is it all from the environment? There isn't really an answer. It's got to be a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. So can we envision and say, yeah, there's going to be a society where there's no such thing as masculinity and femininity and everyone's blending in one big melting pot and doing whatever they want? Probably not because there's probably enough there to say, you know, there's something going on. There are some immutable, you know, issues and differences there. But by the same token, we're clearly still in too much of a restrictive place where we're saying you can only operate in this way or this way um, based on whether you're a man or a woman and everything associated with that. And I think we just need to have conversations where we get to a place where some kind of happy medium where people are okay and that men aren't killing themselves in droves every single year. There's got to be some kind of place in the middle. Yeah, there has to be. and. And, you know, at least speaking from like a, at least from a modern dating sort of perspective, men and women have become very sort of adversarial in their, Mm. in whatever they're doing. And so, um, like you said, like women are elevating themselves and doing all these things, right? Men shouldn't be seeing that and being like, oh, I need to bring them down. So that elevates Mm. me, right? It should be, they have to elevate themselves. So now I need to elevate my game too. What can I do? to understand myself a little bit better? How can I express myself Mm. in a more loving and kind or whatever way, right? And so instead of being at each other's throats, I guess, in terms of divisive nature, like we have to elevate one another in in regards to that. And I think that's that's important too. To do that, we can't just expect boys and men to to just, that doesn't just come from nowhere. You know, the, this kind of, if I was, if I was to term it the kind of know your worth movement, that hasn't come from nowhere. That's like decades worth of feminist writings, teachings, advocacy, etc. That has rightfully um, led, you know, women as a as a, a sexed class to um, reevaluate and to expand and to think and to do this and do that and, and re- reform their role. When we haven't had those conversations for men, um, mm-hmm. and yet we're kind of branding them as complete as a group as complete failures and worthless and then i really do feel like it's tipping over into a a a really kind of normalized hatred for men at a societal level um when we're not having conversations that would actually allow us to then allow men to occupy the space that we expect them to be in just from nothing um I, I, I don't know. I think it's incredibly uh, 
unfair and people would say oh god i can't believe there's a you know a couple of white men on yet another podcast whining about how bad it is to be a man um and that's not what i'm doing i think what i'm saying is is we can't just expect the same level of societal kind of transformation for one group with you know not a lot of kind of discourse at all having had occurred and if anything having discourse at the moment be it, you know some schools are actually teaching really kind of strong messaging around boys um mm. very negative and strong messaging around boys that is not going to be helpful in any way so i think we're i think we're just in this really really difficult place where I think it's necessary and it's vital that we advocate for boys and men and their issues. Um, but I can see why people bulk against it. And just one other point on this, I think one of the biggest issues with this is something that I always talk about, which is the myth of universal privilege. So this, this idea is kind of relentlessly peddled that men have privilege and women don't have privilege. And that, that applies to all men and all women. So all men are more privileged than all women. When that's a completely simplistic way of looking at it, because you have to look at these issues intersectionally, because I'm pretty sure that when you yell and people yell, well, it's okay, because men are in charge, men have all the power. I think if you speak to, you know, um, uh, I don't know, a working class uh, you know, minority ethnic background man from an inner city in the UK, I don't f think that they would feel like they had a huge amount of power in, you know, these systems and all the decision makers. So I think there's this really annoying thing that happens where people say, well, we shouldn't talk about men and we can't talk about men. And we don't need to talk about men because you're privileged and you've got everything. It's like, well, that very much depends on the man that you are. So um, mm. that's that's just the last thing on that point. Yeah. I mean, excellent point there uh, in the middle of where you're talking about, like, I feel like every other group that maybe struggles, there's coalitions, there's advocacy, there's groups, there's laws, there's things that are put in place because we're trying to change society for the better to help those group of people. Now, mm. if men have the issue, it's always just like, they'll figure it out. Mm. Like, we'll just leave them over there. But and now, if you, want it, like, if you want to get something, you have to kind of layer it with something else. That's what I've also, you mm -hmm. know, so if you want to help men, it has to be a certain type of men. And the more kind of, the more specific that you get, the more likely it is that people might pay an interest. I mean, for our, um, for our stuff, I think a lot of people are much more open if you talk about boys, because it kind of pulls on the children and the vulnerability thing mm -hmm. than if you talk about men. So you know, people are willing to listen to, um, you know, boys as victims of child sexual exploitation, but they're not very li willing to listen to men as victims of sexual violence. Um, and again, it's, it's really interesting to try and unpick where that kind of jump happens and why people are yes to this and no to that. Um, I think, I just think fundamentally, how are we ever going to achieve real change, real equality? if we're not talking about men and the issues that they do face because the stats don't lie and the lived experiences don't lie. Yeah. Yeah. And the amount of men who are, who, who just, you know, don't want to be here anymore because of yeah. that. And, um, you know, I have a personal ex experience with suicide. My, my mm. sister took her own life in, in 2018. You know, obviously she wasn't a male, but, that I, I know what it what it looks like and what it feels like to be in the depths of your own hell mm. and feel like I'm better off, everyone is better off, and my pain will go away if I just I'm not alive anymore. Mm. And to know that so many men and people just in general, because suicide rates are, are high, very mm. high, too high, mm. uh, that so many people feel that way. That we we have to do more things about it, more more actionable tactical tools, more more proactive stuff. Like we're always responding to the crisis, and we have to respond to the crisis because sometimes we don't know, or something happens, or there's a certain experience or event that triggers something, right? But if we can get out in front of this a little bit more with these coalitions and advocacy and trainings and teachings and, and all this stuff, and in schools with role models and communities, then maybe 
maybe we can save at least one person from feeling mm. that way. And I think that's a huge win because now they can see their life become great and they can blossom and they can flourish into the person we need them to. Um, mm. And so, you know, that's why it sort of means a lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we just, you know, and I'm sorry to hear that um, because having spoken to, you know, as part of my project with separated fathers, you know, I've I've spent the last two years talking to and and having firsthand conversations with a lot of people who've been in that space um, uh, in in a lot of detail, and it's it's extremely distressing. Um, I think we mainly need to just start gravitating towards more positive conversations, mm-hmm. um, and more productive conversations that, like you said, are less adversarial that aren't about pitching issues as this versus this or this versus that or this group versus this group and start thinking about how do we actualize people. And it sounds very, you know, lovey-dovey and pie in the sky, but it's really not to just take an approach where we try and uh, allow people to actualize the best versions of themselves um, within, you know, a society that has various views on this and that and various stereotypes, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of those you were mentioning around, you were mentioning masculinity of this kind of hammer thing of aggression versus protectiveness and things like that. There are a lot of elements of masculinity that aren't negative. Um, and that actually, when they're utilized effectively uh, and by anyone, male or female, when those stereotypically masculine traits are utilized, they're really useful. You know, there are situations in life where you're going to need to be more assertive or independent or aggressive or whatever. Um, but we need to start having these more kind of productive conversations that aren't just immediately met with, oh, so you hate women or oh, so you don't care about women's issues or oh, so you don't this, oh, so you don't that. Because, I mean, I've done loads of work in both spaces. I've done a lot of violence against women work. I've done a lot of work on the investigation of rape cases involving women. Um, you know, the work that I did two years uh, in, in 2022 Yes, it was about fathers, but it's led to a much bigger picture around separation. How do we how do we help mothers and fathers and children separate? You know, I have a son and a daughter, so I I'm I've always been very upfront about saying, well, yeah, I am interested in men's issues, but that's not because I think they're more important. It's because no one's talking about them. I'm equally interested in so-called women's issues, and I'm more interested in trying to establish what's a human issue. How do we kind of improve things more generally? Um, you know, especially when you look at things like domestic violence, that's always been pitched as a gendered issue, whereas actually more and more of the research suggests that's about trauma, which anybody can experience. So, yeah, it's um, that's my that's why I think we need more of more of those positive conversations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's 100 percent true. More conversations, more dialogue, more empathy as you started with more being able to see maybe the other person's perspective viewing things from Mm -hmm. a new lens seeing oh they might actually do struggle with this instead of dismissing it completely um and it's hard to especially in a podcast like this to not leave people out of the conversation and i never want to do that uh especially when i'm talking about men but i always feel like i have to introduce the caveat that i i do care about women and, and girls and things like that uh, obviously, the most incredible people in my life are women. Uh, my mom and my fiance are the greatest women that I've ever known in my whole life. Um, so, but I, I do think that when we do that, we sort of take away from the actual dialogue of of speaking that boys are struggling and they and they need our mm-hmm. help. And so, I appreciate um, the work that you're doing and uh, the coalition that you've created and all the stuff that you're you're putting out into the world, Doctor Ben. Thank you, and I, and I do, just a lot, you know, final kind of thing is. I do think that's interesting, though, because I do think people very happy. I've seen it happen where people very happily stand up and talk about women's issues very freely without offering any kind of caveat of saying, oh, you know, of course, we care about men as well. And I feel like it's almost for me like a knee jerk reaction, almost an apologist reaction to say, I'm sorry, I'm talking about men, Um, Mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily think we can do anything about it. And I don't think we should do it any differently, at least not at the moment. But I just think it's an interesting observation that we almost feel that we have to excuse the fact that we're talking about men, um, even if, you know, we're talking about an issue that might be overwhelmingly um, a male issue. Um, So, for example, if you want to talk about workplace deaths, I mean, 99.7 or something percent of workplace deaths are men. 
that's one of the most gendered issues you can have. Um, and I think still you'd feel compelled to say, of course, mm-hmm. women sometimes die in the workplace as well, 0.3% of them. Um, whereas you wouldn't necessarily if you were talking about such an overwhelmingly female issue. Um, and I, you know, I also don't want to be accused of being ignorant, you know, of millennium of gender roles, gender politics, gendered issues, patriarchy, you know, the battle for rights, etc. Like, we know all of that, but we are in 2024. So I feel like we're hopefully in a place where we can say it's potentially time, maybe, to start talking and having more of those positive conversations of saying, actually, what we are seeing is we're never going to actually truly make the leap that we want to make without fully addressing these issues as well. And the most poignant example for me is um, is this separation uh, business, because we find that, you know, men are the ones that lose out when couples separate overwhelmingly if they're separating with children. And a lot of that is because we're not having the conversations and putting the structures in place to actually allow men to fulfill the roles that they're supposedly meant to be fulfilling now. We're saying, okay, we're having a really superficial conversation where we want fathers to be hands-on and we want them to be involved because that's what equality is about, yeah? And that's presented as a female issue because it's like, let's take all the pressure off the mothers. Let's let mums go back to work as well. Okay, fine. Do we do anything around shared parental leave? Do we let men stay off work as long as women? Do we give them any kind of postnatal support at all? No. So it's time, I think, in these next decades, we need to start kind of putting our money where our mouth is. Otherwise, we're going to just keep rumbling on on this ever kind of increasing gulf between, you know, a more and more and more, especially in Western countries, a more and more actualized female social class and then a less and less actualized male social class but those are just my two thoughts well i'm with it and uh i think it's a great way to wrap up the episode so thank you for your your time your energy your expertise dr ben i really appreciate it thank you no thank you for having me on cheers Sarah. thank you Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Professor Ben Hine. What idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter via Patreon. Patreon directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. So thank you in advance. I appreciate your support. But most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.